Hi, welcome to season three of the ACE Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read lengthy journal articles or reports. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACEDIT is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. Nimble. That's what scientists, policymakers, and practitioners have to be when it comes to understanding and addressing multifaceted problems. Problems that vary with geographical region and are prone to change based on events often outside the scope of any one jurisdiction's control. For example, fentanyl, produced mostly in China, has in many places changed the face of the opioid crisis. It's cheaper to make and easier to transport and could very well be the canary in the coal mine signaling a global shift towards synthetic drugs. And there is, of course, the COVID-19 global pandemic, which shifted the world's attention toward flattening the curve and stopping the spread of a deadly virus. It's not hard to imagine how the pandemic may have also impacted the opioid crisis. How do you get your methadone when the clinic is understaffed? How would you start on buprenorphine if you can't get to see the doctor face-to-face? In the first episode this season, we explored some of the creative ways state and federal agencies changed regulations to try to address this new normal. Things like allowing multiple days of take-home methadone and allowing individuals to start buprenorphine at home after a video consult with a doctor. Caught in the changing winds of a global drug market competition, state and federal policy regulations and local COVID restrictions are those living with opioid use disorders. But just how are they affected? How are they understanding, experiencing, and navigating this unprecedented time? Dr. Dennis Watson and colleagues sought to find out, and find out quickly, they sought to be nimble. You see, prior to the pandemic, Dr. Watson's team was working on several research studies funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. These studies involved lengthy protocols or detailed explanations of exactly how the studies were to be carried out. They'd likely spent months thinking through the details of each study, including their research questions, how they would collect data, and how they would analyze the data. And then, just as they were starting, or perhaps before they even started their research projects, bam, a global pandemic shut the world down. And they found out just how important it is to be nimble. Now, they would be studying a phenomenon in a vastly different context, and they needed to better understand exactly what kind of context. They needed a scientific approach to understand what is happening now, so they used what's called a pragmatic approach. This is a way of studying a phenomenon that doesn't force you to use theory or limit your questions based on certain hypotheses. It's a way of looking at a phenomenon with the understanding that you are studying something dynamic and bound by a particular context. This lens can be useful for explaining phenomenon during times of rapid social change spurred by events, such as a public health and social crisis. The research team interviewed 25 individuals in Chicago, the majority of which had received methadone treatment during the pandemic. 
They used a convenient sampling approach by recruiting participants who were involved in two projects being run by members of the research team. Participants were informed of the study by a research staff member who was already working with them as part of an existing project. They developed a semi-structured interview guide to specifically understand the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on their treatment and recovery. The guide started by asking about each participant's broad knowledge regarding COVID-19 to lay a foundation for understanding their experiences and reactions to the pandemic. Then, asked questions aimed at understanding how the pandemic had impacted their opioid use, treatment, and recovery from the start of Illinois' shelter-in-place order on March 21, 2020, until the time of the interview. They conducted the interviews over the phone between September 29, 2020, and January 25, 2021. The interviews lasted between 7 and 25 minutes with an average of 16 minutes, and participants received a $30 Visa gift card as an incentive. So how does one turn 25 individual interviews into something larger than the sum of its parts? In other words, how do 25 individual stories help us better understand a phenomenon? You do this by systematically analyzing what was said and pulling out themes. Now, that was a short sentence that covered a lot of ground. What this actually entails is a multi-step systematic process that involved five people. The final sample included six participants who identified as women and 19 as men, 24 who identified as black, and one who identified as Hispanic Latino. The majority of those interviewed had low education, high rates of unemployment, and low income, and half were not independently housed. 19 were receiving methadone treatment, one was receiving buprenorphine, and six terminated treatment at some point between the start of the shelter-in-place order and the interview. What they found when they asked about knowledge of COVID is that most folks got their news from television, the internet, or word of mouth. Only two specifically noted their treatment provider as a source of COVID-19 information. They mostly understood the disease to be serious and deadly. As one man noted, quote, I know it's killing people. I know it's a very bad virus and it's rough. It's got people scared, unquote. A handful of participants thought that older individuals and people with pre-existing conditions, particularly respiratory and breathing issues, were at greater risk or the only ones at risk. While this is partly correct, it also represents a frequent misunderstanding identified across interviews that only those with pre-existing conditions or who are older are at risk of catching the virus. Participants were using their knowledge of the virus to reduce risk associated with it. Indeed, all participants discussed taking preventative measures to keep themselves safe. They also found that the pandemic increased treatment motivation for some. In some cases, participants' motivation to begin treatment stemmed directly from their inability to secure a stable income that could support their opioid use. As one man noted, quote, because there are not many people on the street no more to panhandle from, unquote. Another man who also spoke about the lack of panhandling money noted that before the pandemic, he was getting enough opioids each day to take care of himself and added that he could get what he needed for quote-unquote self-medication. He saw no need then to go to treatment. For some, less so socializing meant less likelihood of using. As one man said, quote, when you're not going out much as you used to and you're not socializing like you used to, you're not getting on your habit, unquote. One woman noted how methadone helped because she didn't have to go search for drugs. 
One participant was motivated to start treatment because the illicit opioid supply had become increasingly adulterated since the start of the pandemic, stating, quote, they put so many other things in it. The heroin is just not heroin anymore, unquote. The next theme identified was the changing nature of interactions with treatment and recovery supports. Participants discussed both positive and negative interactions with treatment and recovery support services. Participants who were in methadone treatment, which was the majority, discussed how changes in regulations allowed more frequent take-home doses, so they no longer had to report to the clinic on a daily basis. Many reported that they liked the change. As one man noted, quote, I prefer twice a week personally because I have other things to do, unquote. But he noted that not everyone feels the same way. Other changes like reduced staffing and the elimination of in-office services were less well-received, which is summed up in the frustrating experiences of one man who said, quote, the only people that be there is the people that, the security that take your temperature and give you a mask before you go in. And the people that's inside the building, they sit back behind a big old desk with plastic all around it. And it's just really hectic. You can't communicate with people. They can't hear you. You keep saying the same thing two or three times. You can't actually go up and talk to someone to find out something. It's ridiculous. And if you do get an understanding from someone behind the desk, then you got to go call the person. You can't go see them. It's just made things terrible, unquote. Other participants lamented the elimination of in-person individual and group counseling sessions that came with the move to telehealth. The third theme identified was reduced social support. Participants described dwindling social support. They were seeing their family and friends less often due to social distancing needs. Many spoke about not being able to visit with children and grandchildren as frequently or at all. Many also noted having close friends who died due to COVID-19. Peers who are also in recovery provide a source of social support that some participants rely heavily on and were unable to access. One participant greatly missed her 12-step meetings. She said it this way, quote, well, actually, it's made me lazy. Not getting up and making meetings begins to make you become more idle, and then you become complacent, and then it's easier for you to just pick up again. Without the fellowship, you know, it's hard to stay. It's hard to stay focused and stay clean, unquote. The fourth theme was inability to find financial support. Participants discussed considerable difficulties keeping or obtaining financial support. Some of this was due to their inability to panhandle, but even more frequently, it was due to their inability to keep employment because they were laid off or let go due to the pandemic. Those looking for work said the pandemic was making job hunting harder, too, because employers weren't hiring, and those who were required an online application, which adds both an additional barrier to the process and also adds to the waiting period. So what do we take away from this look into a highly marginalized group of opioid users? One takeaway is that treatment providers should ensure people with OUD receive appropriate health information in situations where they are at greater risk of transmission or complications of a particular disease. Another is a focus on two key areas of recovery capital, social support and employment, both of which were negatively impacted by the pandemic. Peer support specialists may play an increased role. In addition to providing social support, they could assist people with employment issues. Employment is key to recovery in that it provides meaning to people's lives, as well as insurance and income that can cover treatment costs and improve retention. Perhaps the greatest takeaway 
is that the true measure of a society is how we treat our most vulnerable. While this group might not represent all of the individuals living with opioid use disorder, they are certainly some of the most vulnerable, and seeking out their voices is not only an interesting bit of science to add to the collective body of knowledge, it's an ethical imperative that should inform the decisions we make that impact people's lives. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACEDIT is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. You can find ACEDIT on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, really anywhere that you'd normally find podcasts. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACEDIT.